Um, It will be Psalm 1 and 2 this morning. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves... And the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. But he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Paul, for reading those psalms for us. Good morning and welcome. Uh, My name is Bill Gorman, and I'm the campus pastor here at the Brookside Campus. And let me just add my welcome to Paul's. Thank you so much for joining us this morning and, uh, and being with us, worshiping with us, and, and joining together as a church family uh, to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus and the good news of the gospel. So as we uh, gather every week, that's what we do here this morning, um, and as we prepare to look at these verses that Paul has just read for us, uh, Psalms 1 and 2, as we launch into this new series uh, on prayer, I'd love to begin with prayer and asking God to help us, responding to his words that we've just heard read uh, in prayer back to him. So let's pause and do that and then look at these texts together. Father in heaven, you have spoken and you continue to speak in and through your word. And so we pray that this morning, with the aid of your Holy Spirit, that we would first hear you clearly. And then that you would help us to respond to you rightly in a way that you uh, are worthy of. We pray this in Jesus' name. Be true and ultimate word of God. Amen. Well, prayer is hard. Prayer is hard. And this week, I, I just searched the word prayer in, uh, in Amazon, in the book section. And if you do that, uh, you end up with 115,400 results. So there's a lot of books on prayer out there. Uh, then I searched the word diet in Amazon. 
and it yielded 124,410 results. And so if you do the quick math, there's actually about 8% more books on dieting than prayer. Um, but if the number of books written on a topic is any indication of its difficulty, then prayer is right up there with dieting in terms of how much we struggle with it. And I suspect for most of us, especially if we consider ourselves Christians, prayer like dieting is something we probably think we should do more of and is something we feel guilty about not doing enough of. And also like dieting, I think that prayer is something that feels difficult because there's so many fads and mechanisms when it comes to prayer, right? I feel like the prayer of Jabez was kind of like the Atkins diet of prayer. And if you don't know either of those references, be thankful that you missed both of them. Um, so we feel like we should do more prayer. We feel guilty that we don't pray enough or we don't know how. And we don't really know where to start often when it comes to prayer. But even when we do start to pray, when we begin to make some efforts at prayer, we're immediately confronted with a massive difficulty. And that difficulty is that prayer is unlike any other conversation we have with any other person. And this morning, if you're here and you don't consider yourself a Christian, this may be one of the primary reasons why you struggle with the claims of Christianity. So you're asking me to pray to a God I can't see who doesn't speak back to me. Because in any other conversation, if I text you, you text me back. If I call you, you answer the phone and you call me back. If I email you, email me back. In life, if someone you're having a conversation with doesn't respond, if it just becomes one-sided, that's a big indication that there's something really wrong with that relationship and that it's probably about to crumble. But that's exactly how it feels so often when we pray, isn't it? We write in our journal or, or we speak words or we think thoughts to God, but, but we don't hear Him say anything back. And we wonder, God, are, are you listening? I'm taking the initiative, God, I'm, I'm, I'm talking to you. Why aren't you saying anything back? But while this question about prayer, about why isn't God responding, that we feel so often in our life, that, that, that question of God, are you listening? It's also the question that God's asking us. God is asking me, Bill, are you listening? You see, we cry out to God because he's cried out to us. <laughs> We cry out to the God who is crying out to us. See, we actually haven't taken the initiative in prayer. God has spoken first. He's spoken to us in the Bible. And that's why you'll hear Christians refer to this book, to the Bible, as God's Word or the Word of God, because we believe that this is God speaking to us and that He's spoken first. God has spoken. He is speaking to us through His Word. So then all prayer is a response to what God has already said. He's started the conversation. We don't begin it. We're jumping in to a conversation that he's already begun. And the, and the amazing thing about the Bible is that when we look to it to learn to pray, it doesn't give us a rigid sort of formulaic set of how 
twos. Rather, it gives us examples and patterns. You see, when it comes to prayer, it's more about posture than procedure. Even when Jesus' disciples came to him and said, Lord, teach us to pray, uh, he didn't say, okay, now get out your notebooks and, and jot down these bullet points. He said, pray like this, and he gave them an example that we know is the Lord's Prayer. And all over the Bible, we find examples of people praying, but there's one place in particular in the Bible where we find more prayers than anywhere else, and that's in the book of Psalms. It's, it's known as the, the hymn book or, the, or the, the prayer book of God's people. And the Psalms give us the help we need to enter into the conversation that God has begun. They train us in this conversation. They are tools to know God through first listening and then responding to Him. We cry out to the God who is crying out to us. And in the coming weeks, we're going to be spending time together looking at the Psalms, not as formulas for how to pray in a rigid sort of way, but as an opportunity to listen in on conversations that have gone before us. And that's what the Psalms are. There's the, we get to listen in on the prayers of God's people throughout the ages. And through the use of poetic language, the psalmists capture our imaginations and thus our hearts. No other book in the Bible speaks to or reflects the range of emotions, situations, and settings the way that the Psalms do. If you've felt something in your life, anger, joy, fear, you'll find it in the Psalms. But the first two Psalms that we encounter, Psalms 1 and 2, aren't actually prayers, but they're absolutely indispensable to the way that we pray. Eugene Peterson, who's a pastor in his fantastic book called Answering God, points out that, that Psalms 1 and 2, they serve as two posts of a gate that we walk through as we read the Psalms. He writes this, he says, Psalm 1 and 2 are a pair working together to put our feet on a path that goes from the non-praying world in which we are habitually distracted and intimidated into the praying world we come to attention and adoration. Psalms 1 and 2, they give us a pattern of expectations. They give us the key, actually, to really understanding the whole book. And this morning, as we look at these two psalms, we're going to see, first, that God has spoken. And then we're going to see that God has laughed. And then finally, we're going to see that God has come. So that God has spoken, He's laughed, and He's come. So first, when we look at Psalm 1, we see that God has spoken. Psalm 1, verse 2 says, The blessed person delights in the law of the Lord. Now, the law here doesn't just refer to the Ten Commandments or, or even the first five books of the Old Testament. It refers to the whole of the Scriptures. In other words, when the psalmist says he delights in the law of the Lord, he's referring to what we now know as the entire Bible. You see, God's Word gives us the language of prayer. But it's not the only place we learn to speak. The Psalms begin by describing the counsel of the wicked, the way of sinners, the seat of 
scoffers. The counsel of the wicked is the place where we can learn to speak as well. And this is vital to realize because all language is learned. None of us are born just speaking a language. None of us are born speaking English or French or Spanish. We all learn language. Lucy's kind of right in the heart of that language learning phase right now, and it's so fun to see her discovering new words and how to communicate, but, but she didn't start that way. She's learning to speak as she hears Rachel and, and I speak. We're all learning the language of prayer or non-prayer all the time. And if you learn to speak in the counsel of the wicked, if that's where you're learning, you slowly over time become increasingly cynical and stoic. You begin to speak with scoffing. Uh, Paul Miller, in his helpful book on prayer, he writes this about cynicism. He says, cynicism is, is always observing, critiquing, but never engaged, loving, and hoping. Cynicism looks reality in the face, calls it phony, and prides itself on its insight as it pulls back. And what happens that even as, as a follower of Jesus, as a Christian, if you begin to have a, a cynical heart and, and it, it just kind of creeps in on you, what, what begins to happen is even if you do pray, and even if your prayer is answered in the way that you asked, this is the subtle thought that happens. Well, that would have happened anyway. My prayer didn't make a difference. I mean, have you felt that? I, I've felt that at times. I pray for something, and God actually provides, and then I kind of see, well, th- that would have happened anyway. My, my prayer didn't make a difference. And while cynicism protects us from, from being hurt or having our hopes deflated, it, it also makes us numb. It makes us hard. It makes us lonely, disconnected. It makes us chaff. And you don't have any solid footing. And so when something truly terrible does come into your life, you'll you'll be driven further away from God. So what's the alternative to this then? It's learning to speak by listening to and delighting in God's words. You see, the, the person who does listen to God's Word, who, who doesn't listen to the counsel of the wicked, who, who pays attention to what God is saying, that's the person who experienced what the psalmist calls blessing. And, and to encounter God's Word, to, to read and meditate on the words in this book, is actually to encounter God himself. A pastor in England, Timothy Ward, has a great book called Words of Life about about the Bible and how it functions in in the life of the church and life of Christians. And he says this, he says, Scripture is God in communicative action. Therefore, to encounter the words of Scripture is to encounter God in action. This is not a, a dead, static, ancient document of history. It's a living and active book. But what does it mean to delight in God's law, to delight in His words? 
Well, the psalmist tells us actually through the mechanism of Hebrew poetry called parallelism. So look again at Psalm chapter 1, verse 2, where he says, But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. You see, the second line of the psalm, it, 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 of that verse, it, it, it intensifies and reinforces and explains the first line. As we read through the psalms, you'll see this, this poetic mechanism over and over again. So when we hear the, the word delight, what it means to delight on God's word, it means to meditate. Now, for you and I, when we hear the word meditate, especially in our cultural context, you probably think of something that you do in yoga class uh, or in some kind of a, a TM weekend, a transcendental meditation weekend. But when the Bible uses the language of meditation, what it has is this idea of, of chewing on or murmuring over. It's, the word is literally murmur. But it has this idea of chewing on, saying over and over again, memorizing the words of Scripture, wrestling with it, repeating it to yourself. You see, meditation is not just reading the words. It's, it's meditating over them. It's chewing on them, repeating them, memorizing them until they are bringing deep understanding. And in fact, for, for many of the centuries before Gutenberg, right, in the printing press, most people couldn't just pick up their Bible and read. They didn't have one. And so for them, they would hear it read at church or in the synagogue, and they would memorize it, and they would meditate on it. And as they did, they learned the language of prayer. And the result of this in your life, when you begin not just to read God's Word and then quickly move on, but when you begin to meditate on it, is that you become like a tree planted by streams of water. You become rooted, grounded in God's Word. You start bearing fruit. You don't wither even when difficulties come, when, when hard times arrive. And, and the prospering, the blessing that the psalmist talks about here is first and foremost God Himself. Because when we, when we meditate on God's Word, when we're filling ourselves with that, the, the greatest blessing that we have is that we know God better. It's not first and foremost about getting God's things. It's about getting more of Him. When we learn the language of prayer from God's Word, we, we go to God first to get Him, not, not to get things from Him. And the Bible is, is immensely clear that we do, we ought to ask God for things. But the more we're steeped in God's Word, our, our first and foremost delight in prayer is that we're in contact and in relationship with God Himself, that, that we want the blesser, not just His blessings. Because prayer can so easily turn into sort of this magic ritual or formula that we use to sort of subconsciously manipulate God into getting what we want from Him. So we end up wanting His stuff, but we don't really end up wanting Him. Psalm 1 protects us from falling into that trap, and it's a life-killing trap. So the application for us here is when you go to pray, start with God's words. I love how Tim Keller says this. He says, just prayer is a conversation that God has started. So, so start with His words when you go to pray. And, and honestly, I missed this for so long. Really, up until this year, when I, we, we so often, right, we, we mention 
Bible reading and prayer in the same breath. So often we say, uh, well, I read my Bible and pray. But, but really until recently in my own life, those were two separate activities that were sort of hermetically sealed off from one another. So I read my Bible, close that, step one is done. Now start brand new activity, step two, with my prayer list, and I pray. But what I've been learning is that really there ought to be a seamless conversation where we're beginning with the Scriptures, listening to God speaking, and then prayer is first and foremost responding to what we've just heard God say. And meditation is the way that we listen. And meditation takes time. But you and I, we, we live in a culture where communication is, is 30-second sound bites and 140 character tweets that we skim. I mean, I don't know how we skim tweets, but we do it. I do it. It's 140 characters and we skim. But meditation doesn't. It, it can't work that way. And this is a, a longer passage from Tim Keller's book on prayer, but I want to read you because it, it just it animated my imagination about the difference between a life that's built on meditation and a life that, that isn't. Listen to what he says. He says, persons who meditate on God's Word become people of substance, who have thought things out and have deep convictions, who can explain difficult concepts in simple language, and who have good reasons behind everything they do. Many people do not meditate. They skim everything, picking and choosing on impulse, having no thought-out reasons for their behavior, following whims. They live shallow lives. The people who meditate can resist pressure, but those who do not go along with the throng, chaff-like, wherever it is going. And then he concludes saying, meditation brings blessedness, a very fulsome idea in the Bible. It means peace and well-being in every dimension. It means character growth, stability, and delight. So is your prayer steeped in God's Word? Is it rooted in a relationship with Him? Or is our prayer really more, as one person put it, just wishing upward? In the coming weeks, we're going to be talking a lot more about practical ways of, of moving from Scripture to prayer and, and how do we effectively, uh, what are the practical tools for meditating and, and actually doing that, that work, that hard work of, of listening to God and then responding to Him. Uh, but if you want a head start, if you're eager, to build, I, I just, I got to get this now. Um, Tim Keller's book on prayer, chapter 10, is probably the best you can get on what it, what it means to really meditate on the words of Scripture as the beginning of a conversation in prayer. See, if you don't start with the Bible, with God's words when you pray, you'll end up just praying to a God of your own making, a God who likes all the same things as you, who hates all the same things as you, and you'll just end up really just wishing upwards. But when you start with God's Word, you enter to, into a conversation, one in which you are crying out to a God who has been and is crying out to you. But God has not only spoken, He's also laughed 
And that's what we see in Psalm 2. Psalm 1 shows us the world as it ought to be. Psalm 1 is a picture of how things are supposed to work, but Psalm 2 shows us the world as it is, the world we actually live in. Because so often, the righteous don't seem blessed in this world. They, they, it seems like the wicked are the ones who are succeeding, who are winning. The wicked, the chaff, they seem like they're the blessed ones. And that's where Psalm 2 picks up. Listen to how it begins. It says, Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointing, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. It's interesting, the, the word plot there, the people's plot in vain, that's the exact same word that's translated meditate in Psalm 1 verse 2. You see, there's, there's two types of meditation that we can do. We can meditate on God's word to respond to him in prayer, or we can meditate on how to suppress God's word and his rule in the world. You see, to live in the ancient Near East was a dangerous existence. Warring kings and city-states, they could destroy and take everything you would work for in your life like that. In fact, it's not really all that different from war and torn places around the world today. Iraq, Syria, Yemen, Nigeria, South Sudan, many other places around the world where your life, your property, your family is always at risk. And across the world, everyone, including us, is faced with and affected by spiritual powers and principalities that war against God and His people and His good creation. Every one of us experiences the, the all-pervasive taint of sin that is at the back, that's at the, the heart of radical injustice, the death of unborn children, human trafficking, domestic abuse, cancer, miscarriages, infertility. These are massively powerful forces in the world that rage against God and His people and His plan. This is the world as it is. It's the world that, that we wake up to every morning. It's the world that's a breeding ground for cynicism and the soul that it needs stoicism. Because why pray in a world like that where it seems like the wicked are winning and it doesn't seem like prayer is making any difference? Well, Psalm 2 answers that question for us. You see, Psalm 2, it's a psalm of disputed sovereignty. That's what those first three verses of Psalm 2 are about. They're about God's contested rule. Because God says He's in charge, but there's people who are contesting that rule. They've set themselves up against the Lord and His anointed King, and they claim to be king. They claim to rule. And on many days, it does seem like they rule, doesn't it? They're like the white witch in C.S. Lewis's classic, The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe. I love the scene where Lucy explains to her brother Edmund who the white witch is. The white witch, said Edmund, who is she? 
She's a perfectly terrible person, said Lucy. And then note this, she calls herself the Queen of Narnia, though she has no right to be queen at all. And all the fawns and all the dryads and naiads and dwarfs and animals, at least all the good ones, they simply hate her. And she can turn people into stone and do all kinds of horrible things. And she has made a magic so that it's always winter in Narnia, always winter, but it never gets to Christmas. That's the world we live in. These rulers call themselves kings, but they have no right to be king. So what is God's response to this dispute with his sovereignty, with his rule in the world? Look at verses 4 to 6. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds these kings. He holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. God's response to those rulers who are claiming to be in charge, who are trying to usurp, he laughs. He doesn't laugh at our suffering, our pain. He laughs that they think that they could win. Because if, if verses 1 through 3 show a disputed sovereignty, verses 4 through 6 show a definitive sovereignty. These rulers have aligned themselves against God. Those rulers, they're laughable. They're objects of derision. He speaks words of wrath to them. True, they, they may dispute his rule for a time. They may even seem to be winning. But he has set a king. He has called a people. And those enemies will not stand in the end. They will be utterly defeated. And that's the God who's spoken to us and to whom we respond in prayer. A sovereign, ruling powerful God who can act, who has acted, who will act to defeat evil in the world. Eugene Peterson points out that, that we see two things happening in Psalm 2. He says we see laughter, and he writes, laughter restores perspective. There's no such thing as taking the world's arrogance too seriously. God laughs and we join him. In the laughter, every high-flown pretension is seen as silly posturing. Peterson also says we see adoration. We see rulers needing a ruler. Their world is too small. They need a larger world. They, and the way to a larger world is adoring reverence before the one who is more than they are. You see, there's, there's two stories offered in the psalm. There's the story that's being told by these kings of the earth. The story of the tragedy, death, disease, injustice. And then there's a story that's being told, one that has a divine conspiracy, one in which God is setting a king, a world in which God is on the loose, where Aslan is on the move just not in the way you would have maybe expected or anticipated. Because see, he works from the inside out. He's invaded quietly. Even as evil seems to climb higher and higher and gain more influence, evil's foundations are rotting and crumbling, and it is ripe to be toppled finally. 
The first story will leave you stoic at best and cynical at worst. The second story opens a world of prayerful and hopeful realism that knows the depth of evil and yet is able to ultimately laugh with the one who will bring it to an end. So when you respond to God in prayer, rejoice in His power. Rejoice that you speak to one who rules. And did you catch that language of rejoicing in verse 11 of of Psalm 2? Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. We, We come with trembling because as the children of Narnia discovered Aslan, the true king, is not safe. But the trembling is rejoicing trembling because, oh, is he ever good. We cry out to the God who cries out to us. The God who laughs in the face of evil. We cry out to the sovereign ruler of the universe who hears and is able to act. Now, he doesn't always act in the way that we want or the way that we think he ought to, but he can and does act. Psalm 1 tells us we are blessed when we delight in the law of the Lord, in his word. Psalm 2 tells us we are blessed when we take refuge in God's rule. So God speaks, he laughs, and finally he has come. Now at first, God coming might sound like good news, and it is good news, but it's only good news for one reason. It's only good news for one reason, and that is because when Jesus, God himself, came, he came to save you and me, not just from the enemies out there, but from the rebellion in here, for the rebellion in our hearts. Because it would be so easy if there was just a group of rulers or powers out there somewhere committing evil that God could just destroy and wipe away. But it isn't that easy. And Alexander Solzhenitsyn tells us why. He wrote this. If only it were 